good to be here with you today. Let me encourage you, if you would, to take your Bibles and turn in them with me to the Old Testament book of 2 Kings, 2 Kings in chapter 6. I'm going to look at the small incident here in the Old Testament, and uh, better be very careful. I have a number of preachers here today, so I need to watch how I exegete this Old Testament passage. But let's look together here at 2 Kings 6 and the first seven verses. Let me encourage you to hear the word of the true and living God. And the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See now, the place where we dwell with you is too small for us. Please let us go to the Jordan and let every man take a beam from there and let us make there a place where we may dwell. So he answered, Go. Then one said, Please consent to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water. And he cried out and said, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. So the man of God said, Where did it fall? And he showed him the place. So he cut off a stick and threw it in there, and he made the iron float. Therefore he said, Pick it up for yourself. So he reached out his hand and took it. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away. But the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's go to the Lord and ask his blessing upon the ministry of his word. Let us pray. Great God of heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we bow before you, our triune God. And Father, we confess that we are utterly dependent upon you, that you would be pleased to send your spirit to inspire this your word, and that he might Fill both people and preacher alike. For unless you are pleased to grant us the gracious assistance of your spirit, this one would speak, but in vain. And these your dear people would hear, but in vain. And so we cry out to you, God, that your spirit of illumination would come. Help us to understand your word. But then even beyond that, O oh God, Help us to apply your word to our lives that we may live as new creatures in Christ in your presence. Father, you know the inadequacies, indeed, just how inept your servant is. I pray, Father, that you would be pleased to neutralize all of those defects to the end that these your people would be blessed from this your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now this is a rather curious passage uh, in the Bible. And I heard a number of preachers when I was growing up preach upon this particular passage. I was raised in a Southern Baptist home and church. And uh, it was very interesting to see how this passage is approached. I want you to think with me for just a moment. Occasionally, as one walks through one's house, especially in the South, 
you find the ravages of the monthly spraying for roaches have taken their toll. And somewhere, perhaps on the floor, you'll see one of these common little dark brown specimens that make their habitat here in the southern region of our nation. And you will find this little inch to one and a half inch long creature flipped over on its back and rigor mortis has set in. Now, they're not always Kleenex and paper towels handy <laughs> to pick those sort of things up. And so you don't always pick it up immediately. Sometimes I just let them lie there. Now, as surely as you do, you're going, to, <laughs> you're going to receive one of those unexpected neighborly visits. Now, not to remove that nasty little critter from your premises is a very hard thing to justify. And that becomes even more evident when upon entering your home, the first thing that catches your visitor's eye is the sight of that nasty little thing laying there on the floor precisely where you left it. And it is a hard thing to justify, especially if that person looks at you and asks you, why didn't you pick it up? When that happens, not only are you embarrassed by your lack of tidiness, but you find yourself somewhat <laughs> bewildered as to come up with a proper answer to such a question. So I thought to myself, what should I do? I thought this was a good response. You muster up as serious a face as you can put on. And you look that person in the eye and you say, I left it there as a warning to other roaches. <laughs> that sounds a little kind of hollow, does it not? But that's the impression one gets when one reads this passage of Scripture. You say, "What? why is it in Scripture? What good is this story doing in Scripture? And it might be that someone would rightly say, well, it demonstrates the power of God working through the prophet. Yes, it does. But is that the message of the passage? It still seems so trivial. Some might even say quite unnecessary, almost senseless, so outlandish, causing an axe head to float in the water. And moreover, what substantial teaching can we, the people of God, this side of the cross, hope to gain for our lives anyway? And so I've seen all kinds of various approaches to this passage as I referenced earlier in my childhood growing up. Some like to take a passage like this and rationalize it. And they say, well, aha, what really happened here, you see, is that the prophet, when he cut off that stick or that branch or that pole, he just kind of scurried around, you see, in the bottom of the water there until he managed to stick that stick through the hole of the axe head and that he got that branch in the pole and lifted the axe head out of the water, assuming that there was a hole in the axe head. Well, that's not what verse 6 really intends to say, does it? Or you can criticize this passage in a negative way. And you can say, as you raise your brow, well, this is clearly legendary. Never really happened. 
there were a number of the prophet's disciples and admirers who passed on this tradition, and as they passed it on, they were simply so enamored with the prophet that they took something that was quite an ordinary circumstance and blew it up all out of proportion because of their love for the prophet Elisha. Or you can allegorize it or spiritualize it. That is, you can make it mean something else rather than what it really intends to say. For example, the axe head represents man's life or man's soul. And because of his own negligence or sin, it has been plunged beneath the waters of judgment. And there it lies. But secondly, the prophet, he cuts down a branch, a limb, wood, you see. Wood is from a tree. It represents the tree, the cross on which Christ died, the work of Christ. And when that is thrown into the situation, lo and behold, the axe head, it floats. But then, of course, it's necessary that you lay hold of that axe head with a hand of faith and take it. Now, I don't want to make light of the work of our Lord. And we should be very careful never to do that. And I trust I'm not doing that. But that is not what this passage is about. You do get a meaning out of what otherwise may appear to be a barren passage in that way, but there's a problem with it. There's a problem when you begin to allegorize or spiritualize a passage like that. For example, some of you married men here today, you might be asked by your wife to go to the grocery store and fill her grocery list. What would happen if you did that sort of thing or interpreted your wife's grocery list in that sort of way? You see on the list that she has noodles listed. You say, aha, clever wife, noodles. Sometimes we say, use your noodle, meaning use your head. And what she really wants is a head of lettuce, not noodles. And so on it goes. Next thing you see on the list is marshmallows. And you say, ah, oh, marshmallows are soft. That's their chief characteristic. She's really crafty. What she really wants here is Charmin, not marshmallows. But then she has chicken written down on the grocery list as well. And you say, aha, this is really tough now. Chicken. Well, sometimes we have a way of referring to someone when they are scaredy cats, and we call them a chicken. We say they are yellow. There it is, yellow. That's what she really has in mind. It must mean that she has either cheese or she has uh, eggs or, or something yellow or butter. Maybe that's what she wants from this list. But you recognize that the first radical in chicken, C-H, is equivalent to the Hebrew cat, and so that must be something yellow that has cat as the first radical, and therefore you say it must be cheese and not butter. Now if you take that particular list of groceries, and you go to the store, and you interpret it in that fashion, and you bring those groceries home to your wife, my friend, you are not only foolish, but you are a very courageous man if you pull such a stunt. 
Now the Jordan River here is not hell. It is the Jordan River. The axe head is not man's soul. It is a real hunk of iron that fell into the water, just like the passage informs us. The stick or the branch is the branch of a tree growing by the Jordan River. It does not equal the cross, and I say that reverently. Or another way some may approach this passage is to moralize it. They say, we have to get some kind of lesson out of it. So we say, uh, oh, I know what it is. It means, here's the lesson. You should not borrow the property of others. Because he drops and he says, alas, master, for it was borrowed. Never a lender nor a borrower be. Or it could be, don't ever cut wood by the river. That's the moral message. And you see, if you take that as a proverb, it has many applications. Or you might look at these sons of the prophets who were commonly known to have enrolled in the school of the prophets and say that seminary students ought to be satisfied or content with smaller dormitories. Or to reduce it to a principle, one must be content with what you have. After all, that's biblical, is it not? Yes, it is. Now, it may be biblical, but this is not the passage to support it. Or can we take this passage straight at face value? And I'm not sure, since we have so little guidance to help us, and I'm thinking about me in particular that I've hit upon, I don't know that this is exactly the correct way of looking at the passage, but I think it's a whole lot closer than some. And so I ask you to be like the good people of Berea and search the scriptures and think it through. First of all, as we look at the passage, I would say what it teaches us in the first place is God's concern for a simple need. God's concern for a simple need. It was just an axe head, verse 5, that fell into the water. And look at the story then in the context of Second Kings and, and all the context that surrounds this particular story. Now, Elisha has already shown that he's concerned with the needs of individual believers of the remnant in Israel. He had shown that to us earlier in chapter 4 of 2 Kings. But in chapter 5 that precedes this chapter, and in the remainder of chapter 6 into chapter 7, we have a little bit of a different setting if we look at the passage in the broad context. Naaman the Syrian, chapter 5. Well, an individual, yes, but Naaman is somebody. And also, his visit to Israel had great big polit political ramifications. Just ask the king of, the is of Israel if you don't believe that. So that preceded what took place in this passage. And then right after this story found in our text, we have military engagement with the nation of Syria. Chapter 6, verses 8 and following. And at the end of chapter 6 and through chapter 7, we have Assyria attacking, besieging Samaria. And you have this huge domestic crisis then. And in the middle of all of that, 
we have this axe head story. <laughs> and so, so we have international politics, foreign affairs, military strategy, a domestic crisis, and in the middle of all of that, God is somehow concerned for a measly little axe head. Sounds strange. We know something about unrest today, especially in our own nation. And a lot of what we've been passing through since the election of our present president. We've seen the goings on in Korea. We see the threat of Iran. And you mean to tell me that the God of Israel is concerned with the perplexing needs that I may have in the middle of all of that? And the answer to that question is yes. Yes, he is. He is concerned with every single need that we as believers in Jesus Christ have. And you see, that is precisely the glory of the greatness of God. You see, the greatness of God in the Bible consists precisely in the fact that he is also faithful in little things. And part of our problem is I think that we tend sometimes to identify very subtly, yes, but we do it nonetheless. We associate God's greatness only with bigness. Or uh, we associate the, uh, uh, God with something that is very, very big. And so people often say that the bigger churches, is, uh, that's where God's greatness is displayed. But God is concerned with something besides bigness. In fact, that's not God's primary concern. And when we associate the greatness of God with the bigness of God, we tend to carve out a God that's made in our own image rather than the God who is presented to us in the pages of Holy Scripture. So that when we think, aha, he is like us. He is busy. He's so pressured, you see, by so many duties and these responsibilities. He's preoccupied. He's distracted. He can't be concerned with the trivial details of my life. That's what I call the corporate president view of God. Uh, that he's at the head of this vast corporation. And he can only be bothered with the essential things, the critical things, the major, the substantial issues. I mean, he can't get, be concerned about Joe Smo or Alice Peon down here on the assembly line. I mean, he's like a VIP, a very important person. But he's not like that, dear people. He is the God of Israel. And his greatness consists precisely in the fact that he does care and attend to the small details, not even a sparrow falls to the ground without the notice of our Heavenly Father. The very hairs on our head are numbered by God. He knows them, and God does care about your activity. He does. And it's when we forget to believe and practice that, that we often find ourselves, you and I, in a bad way. Little problems, small details, insignificant matters tend to pile up and we do not commit them to the bosom of God in prayer 
and ask him to meet our needs. All because we have this false view of God that he's VIP. And I'm just Joe Smoke. And he can't be concerned with me. That, dear people, is bad theology. I remember the story of a 70-year-old minister who pastored a little church in Pennsylvania. And uh, his name was A.D. Anderson. And uh, he walked with a cane and he had a limp. Well, there was a time when he uh, went over to a neighboring town for the one he lived. And he needed to find a parking place to go into a business for an appointment. And as he drove around the block, there was no parking place available. And so he went on and he drove around the block and he said, Lord, I need a parking place. Drove, drove on, came around the block again, and lo and behold, there was a place for him to park. And are you saying, David, that God cares about parking places? Does that offend you? Does God care about who's on the other end of the telephone that you may be talking to at the present time? You see, when he says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool, your axe head matters to such a God. Now in the second place, we see that the passage underscores God's power for a crucial need. God's power for a crucial need. When this man saw the axe head swing right off its handle and sink to the bottom of that river, he cried out, Oh! No, heavens me, alas, master, for it was borrowed. And our problem, I think, as we consider this man's anxiety over an accident, is that we find it very difficult today to step out of our penny loafers or our tennis shoes and into his sandals or whatever he had on his feet and feel the need, the sense, the need that he sensed. You see what he's saying? He didn't have the money to replace the axe head that fell off the handle. He couldn't go to a local true value store and a hardware store and buy one. It wasn't possible. He didn't have the funds. I mean, after all, he had had to borrow an axe head. And now he had lost it. And evidently, if he had if he had had to borrow one, then he surely didn't. He was too poor to pay for one himself. And it just stands the reason that he would have been hard pressed to replace that axe head. It was a crucial need. It was a real need, even if it was a small need, much as it may seem trivial to us. And so, I would suggest for our edification this afternoon that. Axe heads and tools and food and olive oil and pennies weren't to be taken for granted by these sons of the prophets. It was a real genuine need that he had. And what I am saying is this, that when God calls that axe head to float, this was no heavenly piece of razzle-dazzle. God doesn't just do miracles for kicks. There was a genuine need here that God intended to meet. And it is God's tendency that when there is a real, genuine, urgent need among his people, 
It is his tendency to supply that need in a mighty and in a powerful way. And if he does that, we shouldn't be surprised when God does it. True enough. You and I ought to realize that sometimes our needs need to be interpreted. I realize that. That is, sometimes we need to find wisdom to show us the way as to what our true needs really are. Agree. But nevertheless, it is God's way that our destitution calls forth his help. And it is our urgent needs that bring forth his abundant supply. God's power for a crucial need. I remember a much older man than myself once talking to me about the baseball player Frank Thomas. Anyone here remember the baseball player Frank Thomas? <laughs> you got to be old to remember him. Now, Frank Thomas used to play, I think it was he played left field. Uh, he played for the Pittsburgh Pirates, if you were a Pirate fan. Probably somewhere back in the 1950s, as I said, before most of us were born. <laughs> Maybe even in the 60s. But he was a fairly good power hitter in his day. And uh, I don't remember exactly his statistics for home runs. Maybe he hit 20, 30, 40 home runs a year. I'm not sure. But one of those kinds. But Frank Thomas was kind of regarded as a power hitter for the Pirates. Well, I remember this man telling me the story, and he was no friend of Frank Thomas. <laughs> he would say, yeah, sure, he says, Frank Thomas. He says, uh, well, they may say a lot about him, but you watch. You watch. Anytime Pittsburgh's way ahead or Pittsburgh's way behind or anytime when there's no one on base, anytime when it really doesn't matter whether he hits or not, he'll hit. <laughs> but you let there be one or two outs and you let the game be close and, and tied and they really need the, the, the runs. You know the buzzword for this, in the clutch. He said, Frank Thomas always chokes in the clutch. <laughs> well, that being said here, basically, I want you to see that God, the God of Israel, is faithful in the clutch. He never chokes. Never. God is for his people. But then in the third place, as we try to understand this passage, I think we see here God's providence for a timely need. God's providence for a timely need. And here, let me just encourage you to check me out on this. It's interesting that if you just take this story itself and uh, you look at what's important in these seven verses, it's fascinating to notice how important it is what happens in verse 3 and the first of verse 4, how important that becomes. Notice, then one said, please consent to go with your servants. And Elisha's response is, I will go. So he went with them. Elisha goes with him. Now, we don't think much of that when we just read through it and skim over it. But it's interesting that down at verse 6, it becomes rather important, does it not? 
And significantly enough, the writer does not refer to him here just as Elisha, but how does he refer to him? He refers to him as the man of God. He's the man of God. And the point is, is it significant and important that Elisha was there when the axe head was lost? And if he had not been asked, and if he wouldn't, if he had not been available to bring God's power into that situation, you look back on it from the standpoint of verses six and seven, and it makes a whole lot of difference that one of those fellows said to Elisha, please consent to go with your servants. If he hadn't been asked, he wouldn't have been there. And he would not have been available. So much seems to hang upon that little detail. Is that significant? Perhaps so. There's a story that C.H. Spurgeon tells us in his little book, Lectures to His Students. How many of us here, we got a few preachers, have we read Lectures to His Students by, by Spurgeon? Well, he uh, tells a story in, in that about this dissenting minister in the old days in England who was trying to get away from the authorities, and he had been tipped off that uh, they were after him, and so he had taken the flight, and he was, he was running away from, from the authorities. And he finally came upon an old abandoned malt house, and he entered it, and he went down uh, into the entrance of the kiln. Does anyone know what a kiln is? What's a kiln? Someone tell me. It's an oven. Exactly. It's a it's an oven. It's a it was a big stove. And so he went down into the malt kiln. And uh, he dropped down in there and breathlessly he remained there hidden in the kiln. And as he looked up through the kiln, and the light came through the opening that was there. And this opening was the very one through which he had just passed to enter into the kiln. <laughs> he looked up and he noticed that something began to happen around the entrance of that kiln right after he had entered it. <laughs> A spider started to work across the entranceway into the kiln, building a nice, intricate, beautiful web. And the descending minister, as he watched that spider, he, he became fascinated with it. He even forgot that he's being chased by the authorities. So caught up with the spider's work that he forgot all about his danger. Until when the spider was almost finished with its masterpiece, the authorities suddenly came rushing into the malt house where the minister was, kicking around, looking, scurrying around, searching the place, cursing, banging doors, trying to find him. And finally, one of them looked over and noticed the kiln. And he saw the entrance to the kiln. And it said, the other said, Oh no, there's no use in looking there. Why look, there's a spider's web across the entrance. He couldn't have gotten in there without having broken the spider's web. And so they left. 
Does God control spiders? You bet he does. He controls all the little intricate details in our lives. Marvelous. Those little circumstances that don't seem to amount to a hill of beans to us that become very significant. Why? Because they're in the hand of an almighty God. And I know that many of you here could begin filling in blank after blank of this kind of instance in your own life where you could you could stand up and testify with your own illustrations of this very kind of thing of how God what well, he he came through in the clutch for you. It is fascinating. God's blessed way of being for his people in Christ in the puniest of circumstances. And what should we do in response to something like that? What action should we take? Well, dear people, we should join in the blessing of faith that loves to adore and worship a God like that. In this passage, Todd is giving us a little portrait of the kind of God that he is that he is concerned about the details of our lives. He's not some VIP, remote, unconcerned with our needs, but he's concerned with every single need we have. Well, there's more, I suppose, that I could say about this little story, but I won't. Second Kings chapter 6, verses 1-7 through seven, is hardly a massive compendium or storehouse of theology. But this little word of God may be just where you are today. So don't despise this little word of God. And aren't you glad that at least this once God gave a preacher the axe. Let's pray. Father, we do indeed thank you for this wonderful Old Testament passage. We thank you, Father, for giving us this story of the prophet Elisha. We thank you, Father, that you remind us here that you're concerned about the details of our lives, that there is nothing in our life that is intricate, so intricate that is, it is beyond the scope of your providence. We thank you, Father, that you are for us we thank you that you always provide our needs, even when we don't realize or see them as we ought. We thank you, Father, that even when we don't interpret what is a need the way we should, you, our God, work in your providence for us. So help us, Father, to receive today the blessing of this your word. And help us to be thankful that you're concerned about the little things of our lives. And we offer this our prayer of gratitude in Jesus' name. Amen.